Welcome to the Networking for the People podcast series. If you are looking for guidance on NFTs, you've come to the wrong place. But stick around anyway as we figure out what our friends are up to, why they're doing what they do, and how they ended up getting in there in the first place. I'm Robert. Welcome to NFTP. Today, we welcome Shlomo, Long Island native and avid sports fan. Shlomo is a journalist with his work largely focusing on sports and the growth of sports and technology, social causes, and other tangential industries. He's done stints with the New York Knicks, our hometown team, Business Insider, Forbes, and has various other journals and sites under his name. Shlomo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Also, if you do need some NFT insights, I can provide them. We may have to get into that one point or another to get us get us right into it. In your own words, who are you and what do you do? My name is Shlomo Sprung. I am a senior staff writer for Boardroom.tv, which is under the umbrella company of 35 Ventures, which is owned by Kevin Durant. You may have heard of him. He plays basketball sometimes well, sometimes really well for Brooklyn. And we're a really growing, fast growing publication for sports, technology, Web3, music, culture, whatever really seems interesting. I get to write for them and I get to make money off of it. And I really like it. That's awesome. It's funny that you brought up the NFTs piece before. Like you mentioned, Boardroom has that Web3 piece tying into its writing. So I'm sure you're learning about it in more ways than one. Yeah, for sure. For me, I don't really know too many journalists. For you, how did you get into journalism and what pushed you into this direction? So when I was growing up, I always loved sports from when I first remembered, maybe like five or six. I had was always had an encyclopedic knowledge of sports. When I was in second grade, our principal knew, somehow knew the producers at Letterman and offered for me to go on the show to show off my sports knowledge, but my parents didn't like Letterman, so they did not let second grade me on. Um, And it kind of worked from there. Originally wanted to be a broadcaster, but then in like middle school and high school, I figured that I really liked writing. And so I used to write for our high school newspaper. And then this was like, all right, I'm old. So this was like when blogs were first starting in the very early aughts. So that's where I started just writing about whatever. Then I went abroad to Israel between high school and college and started blogging on Sporting News' website. This was like 2006, 2007. I got in the print edition of the magazine a couple times, which no longer exists, RIP. That summer, I interned at the Jerusalem Post. This was before I started college. They had a professional baseball league in Israel for that summer and that summer only it went down in flames and I got to cover that league every day for an entire summer which was really cool summer in Israel awfully hot (laughs) yes yes it was most of the games were during the day so that did not help matters much whatever I was like 18 19 years old I didn't know any better So I did that, always knew that I wanted to write about sports, went to Queens College, wrote for the student newspaper there for three years, edited there last year, Uh, went to Columbia for journalism school right after that, and then off into the cruel world of journalism. Well, thanks for giving me the different directions and the different pieces that brought you 
to where you are now, I will want to touch on the journalism school at Columbia later on. I guess for now, since you brought up the fact that you did print, now you're doing media, you don't have to uh, write for you know a written newspaper anymore. I guess even the New York Times has uh, realized that that's kind of fallen off the tracks in terms of subscriber counts these days. You do point to this multitasking that you've been doing through the course of your writing experiences. I wonder if that's the Letterman approach that you never got exposed to uh, in second grade. You know, being able to pivot, being able to work with whatever type of content comes your way and whatever opportunity comes your way. How do you balance the types of things, if they are sports and whether they're not sports, or if they're not sports, the type of research that you have to do to feel comfortable writing about a certain type of work? Um, I mean, it's I'm a big believer in Gladwell's 10,000 hours. And so the only way to be an expert on a subject is to delve into it as much as possible. It's not like you can pick up something. Well, that's not true. There are certain people who they retain everything right away. And I hate those people. They always make me look bad. I am one who have to like repeatedly, you know, study something in order to like retain it and gain mastery of it. And so the only way is through a lot of work and a lot of effort. If you want to pick up uh, you know, a new subject, you, the only way is to put in the time and do the research. And sometimes you have to do that while juggling a bunch of other things. Um, thankfully, Google Calendar, not a sponsor yet. Not yet, <laughs> we'll see. Not yet, not yet, we're getting there. We'll get bigger guests than me soon. Just put things down on your calendar get as many of them done as possible and move forward. And just every Monday, jump on the work treadmill and hope it doesn't send you crashing into the wall. These days, you know, our treadmills are getting smart. So they have those auto stop features, hopefully preventing you from doing so. Famous last words. Thanks for kind of walking me through that. I agree, I practicing something, getting good at the repetitive nature, doing it slow, doing it fast. You can maybe attribute that more to music, you know, learning how to play an instrument. But, you know, the same with doing research. You start to tune how you, you know, work your approach, find what approach works for you. Not a musical bone in my body. Well, to, to each their own, right? There's a, there's a great book that I like. Um, it's one of resources in our networking resources page for our listeners. It's called Range by David Epstein. And it talks about how, you know, you can do all this work in one area um, and all of a sudden, you grow an interest in something complete or seemingly completely unrelated. And then all of a sudden, all that practice that you put in bef in some other discipline before now somehow shows up in the day to day in this new role. So that goes probably the same for writing, for for sports, for music. Uh, for a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. How do you think you relate to that? Uh, that's a good question. For me, in my current job now, where I do a lot of different types of projects. I'm in an operations type role. So chief operating officer one day sometimes is kind of the dirt, you know, does the dirty work amongst the C-suite, trying to get all the things moving forward, all the projects closed out. So for me, it's about having put in the time in those other parts of my life through playing tennis, through some of my hobbies, knowing how to bring something from start to finish and then refining a skill as you go. I think for me, that would be the most relatable. How's your forehand? How's your ground game? <laughs> I'd say my forehand uh, is pretty good. It's probably my best shot. Working on my one-handed backhand every day. Felt it was better in high school, but maybe I just don't practice it enough anymore. <laughs> I mean, we all peak at high school in some things, right? That's right. <laughs> 
So I do want to touch on what you mentioned before about your master's in journalism degree at Columbia. Can you tell me about that experience? What inspired you to continue, you know, your education in journalism? Whereas I feel not everyone may pursue that continued route, though I may be completely wrong. Sure. No, you're you're on the right track. So my last year in school, I was considering, I definitely wanted to go to grad school. This was 2010, we were still like deep in the throes of the recession. So the job market was like not the best. And so going to grad school for a year and like pushing that off a little bit wasn't the worst thing that you could have mm-hmm. done. I was thinking about CUNY, uh, CUNY's J School, uh, J School at the University of Maryland. And then I was like, oh, you know, I might as well like apply to Columbia. And my dad was like, I don't know, what are you wasting your time for? Shouts to my dad. Um, my biggest hater. Not kidding. I you know I I applied on the last day before the application deadline. Wrote some you know personal statements. There was an entrance exam, which was different than the GREs. Like they didn't mm. even take the GREs, which is good because I suck at math. Still do. <laughs> and I got in. I was 22 in a school where there were people in my class who were twice my age. 22-year-old me was definitely not, in hindsight, you know, an Ivy League rigorous graduate school where they were packing two years into a one-year program. I learned a lot, gained a lot of writing skills, lifelong contact, paid a lot for a nice degree, took a few years to pay my loans off. Definitely ultimately worth it. I always knew I wanted to go into journalism, always knew I wanted to go into sport. No, this was the path for me, even though, you know, it's a winding road as journalism is. It's not the most secure field. If you have the passion for it, you just need to keep chasing and pursuing it. Even if uh, you're gonna slip and stumble a lot, which definitely happened to me, it's it's worth the, the journey. Sounds really sappy when I say it that way. There's kind of luck and twists and turns to anyone's journey. Like a baseball player trying to slide or get, grab a steal, you're gonna slip and slide before you either steal a base or you you know you get touched out. You could probably attest to more witty sports metaphors than that. That's kind of the, the limit of my baseball knowledge when it comes to slipping and sliding. That's right. <laughs> so it, it's interesting almost uh, to your experience with doing your master's, you said you know, you're, you were 22, people there were twice your age. But you know, in journalism, it's kind of, it doesn't seem to me like age is really a, a big factor, right? It's all about, again, in my eyes, landing a big story, putting a couple of really nice dots together, having an outline and really packing a punch with each kind of statement or any kind of powerful words you say. Can you think of any big assignments that you may have done or worked through? I know it's been a while. You know, it's, it seems like that was a really good start to your, to your journey here. So is there anything that you can pull back from there? I edited a website for a newspaper in Brooklyn for six years. And while I was doing that, I was trying to freelance sports on the side. So I kind of had two jobs. Um, had a, a mentor named Chris Sheridan, he used to work for ESPN and the Associated Press, and he gave me my first gig like, covering sporting events. And nice. when I was like 25 or so, I had this gig where I had a season pass to cover every single Knicks and Nets game. So that was- Love that. It was 82 games, the chance for me to go to, you know, 82 games and go into locker rooms and talk to as many people and make as many contacts as possible within the NBA. And so I would work a nine to five job in Brooklyn and then go and work until like, you know, 11 at these games. And I did that for six months out of the six, seven months out of the year, four or five years. And so that's 
that was kind of a, another master's degree or a PhD <laughs> yeah. in, in making contact, covering the NBA. The pay was terrible, but it was kind of like my finishing school. I got to go to, you know, all-star games, drafts, playoffs, summer league. So that's kind of how I learned to write on deadline, to, you know, to talk, you know, how to know how to talk to really amazing professional athletes and coaches and executives and work your way up through there. Led to some other freelance gigs while I was working this gig and it went on that way for, you know, six years this until that site went under and I latched on at uh, some other places and you kind of like string your way along through there, you know. Got laid off from my main gig in 2019 because it was a newspaper, it had budget shortcuts and that's how it goes. And mm -hmm. then had to freelance full time and through that, did that through the pandemic. And as a sports writer, it was tough to write about sports when there was no sports. That's right. Probably tough. Yeah, that's, that, that is tough. And you just, you know, figure out your way. I, I had a gig, you know, I had a six month gig with Major League Baseball in 2019, where I would write about the minor leagues and my work hours were 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. So graveyard shift. Where, I guess, uh, I don't know, not quite graveyard shift. Not quite the graveyard. What I don't even know what what's right before the graveyard. Like, yeah, that one. <laughs> Third shift. The analogy doesn't really like have legs, you know, like before yeah. the graveyard, like the nursing home. Like it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't really, the, the, the metaphor doesn't really like, doesn't go on like that. Exactly. You know? uh, I was at Forbes in between then and you just string jobs together, make your rent, make ends meet and hope you, you find a break, which I later found. And I know you're working full time with Boardroom now. I've seen you put out a lot of content, even today, um, as I was gearing up for our interview, but I can't say I read through much of it, to be honest, as I had my own work day before our, our call today. Even my parents don't read all my stuff, so like you don't have to either. <laughs> I do want to touch on something you brought up during your time with some, you know, the professional athletes on the Knicks, on the Nets, and not pointing to anyone in particular, or maybe you do have someone in particular that comes to you mind. point to people in particular. Do it. Well, you, you'll, you'll have to tell me, have you ever felt intimidated or maybe on, in the opposite end, like a fanboy moment speaking or interviewing any athlete, any coach, any, you know, executive? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, was I intimidated uh, before? Um, Gerald Wallace was a really scary dude. That guy was scary. He had a really deep voice. I remember one of my first times in the locker room, Brandon Bass from like the mid-aughts Boston Celtics. He was walking around in the locker room asking people for a cigarette, which was weird. But Gerald Wallace was a scary dude. Dion Waiters wasn't especially nice. He was busy at the time, so he's from Philly. And so the Eagles were playing a playoff game. And so he didn't really want to talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Roy Hibbert, who you may know from Parks and Rec, was one of my favorite interviews. He's like a really good dude. Very funny. Back he also crushed show, our next team. Well, he was on the Pacers those couple of years. Remember the show Empire? I do know the show. I have not watched it. There were a lot of songs in the first season. It was really hot. And from the locker room, you heard Roy Hibbert singing one of those songs in, in the showers. It was very... And I 
no one could really pay attention. He was he was cracking everybody. Yeah, seven foot two, booming voice. He's he's yeah. a nice guy though. Uh, at least that's what I get from interviews. On the on the contrary, then you you know you kind of listed some uh, maybe intimidating or, or fun people. Who is your who's been your favorite? Even not NBA related. Um, I know you recently had a session with Mark Cuban, the owner of the Mavericks, who's quite an interesting person. His whole story is. You know, you could talk, you could write books about that. I'm sure there is. I don't know if there is one, but I'm sure there will be one soon. I'm sure there are. <laughs> Mark Cuban was definitely an interesting one. It's interesting to see which people will let loose and actually have a conversation with you and which ones are like very well trained to not say anything. Mm-hmm. Like Dak Prescott, very well trained to, to not say anything controversial. Patrick Mahomes, same way had to negotiate with his PR team for four months to get a 10 minute phone call with him. Wow. Sometimes it's that. And then there's sometimes that you just like it, like any, any interaction with another human being, you connect with them and you have like a really good conversation. I had that with Des Bryant, the former Dallas Cowboys wide receiver. We ended up talking for over an hour and like bonding and like, you know, it's so it, it varies from person to person. Some people ask me, oh, how could, you know, are you nervous when you interview these people? Like, yeah, you know, you get the jitter sometimes, but ultimately, you know, these people breathe, eat the same way that you do. Yep. So if you talk to them like, a, you know, like a human being, not like a demigod or whatever, or like this, put this person on a pedestal, you relate to them more as people rather than as whatever, whatever they are, athletes, CEOs, owners yeah. of teams, just, just talk to them like a human being. And that goes a long way. And have them, you know, have like, show them the respect that you would show anyone else. As you describe that, I'm thinking of one of my favorite shows right now is Hot Ones with Sean Evans. And I don't know if you yeah. make time for that. Uh, every Thursday, I believe, 11 a.m. Eastern, kind of advertising in their behalf. Not that they need yeah. any advertising, not, not but <laughs> not a sponsor. But yeah, I would love to would love to have him on. We're going to get our Scoville. Yeah, we need our Scoville scale. We'll poll our crowd for that. But yeah, I think it's funny almost with those interviews. I've seen maybe all, you know, over a hundred now. And it's always interesting reading the comment section there because everyone always says the same thing. Like, oh, he's such a good interviewer. And it seems that guests always get so comfortable. Partly it's due to the questions he asks, right? Him and his team, they do good research and put good questions together to really like get into someone's mindset and not just ask the general, you know, uh, why are you an actor? Why do you like to do certain kinds of roles that, you know, the, the typical late night talk show stuff? Maybe it's the hot sauce. Maybe it's uh, him as an interviewer. I like to think it's both. Um, yeah, it totally makes sense with what you said. And that's how I see it also playing out in those kind of situations. I mean, just treat them like you would treat anyone else. Like you do your, you have to do your research. I think the research is the hard part because once you do your research and you formulate your questions and you riff off that. And another big key is to make sure that you're not just asking questions and having follow-ups is that you, you know, you're actually having a conversation. Like we have conversations all the time, you know, it may be this time with a famous person, but ultimately if you're having a conversation and you feel like there's rhythm and chemistry, obviously there, I've had bad interviews in, in which it's like pulling teeth. Orthodontists enjoy pulling teeth, so I don't know what they call something unpleasant. You know, you, you have bad interviews, and of course, you know, those are very awkward and uncomfortable, and you're happy that you're done with them after, but the good ones, you know, they stick... Well, the bad ones stick with you too, but the good ones stick with you longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that working out. I want to point to something um, that maybe you have to deal with either while you're writing or 
as you finish writing, you're in that editing stage with your editor or with ever, whoever is publishing in that cycle, whether it's at Boardroom or from previous experiences. When you finish on material and then whether or not you have to work with someone's comms team, with someone's PR team, has someone ever reached out to you after the fact, after you've published and said, actually, can we take some of this stuff off? Can we take some of this down? Is there any time where you've had that kind of situation happen? That happens all the time. I bet. <laughs> Which was my fault because there was, you know, there was a certain, um, there was a, a certain error that I made in this uh, NFT story that I wrote. Shout out to NFTs. And so obviously, if there's a like a mistake that I made, it was a very minor. It was I wrote that this person had this particular NFT product invested in by a subsidiary of a parent company when I should have written the parent company. So like, okay, whatever, I'll change that. And there was one line where they were like, our lawyers are really worried about this line. And I'm like, well, I don't really want to get you sued. You know? <laughs> yeah, let's take that off. <laughs> it wasn't, it's like everything in, in no matter what your job is, your experiences, like there are certain battles that are worth fighting for and there are certain battles that are not. And so by, you know, through experience, you and leaning on, you know, your colleagues and your superiors, you figure out which battles are worth waging and fighting for and which ones, you know, you lay down your sword and I'm like, you know, it's not a big deal if you help these people out because um, I'm not much of a, a bridge burner. Um, not really good at lighting lighters or striking mm -hmm. matches. Like, <laughs> it work too well. And so, um, I'm more of a peacemaker. Oh, there are, you know, there are certain journalists who are bridge burners. They burn bridges and they torch and they incinerate. <laughs> so probably are going from job to job very quickly because sometimes, you know, you wear out your welcome. That's a, that's one style. Obviously you have to stand your ground sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there's someone who says, oh, can we see this article before it's published? Well, no, then that's not journalism, that's public relations. And so right. like the answer to that question is always going to be no. You know, you have to choose your battles. Like every job, every relationship, every friendship is about choosing, picking and fighting your, your battles. Yep, that totally makes sense. No matter what industry you go to, what any academic journal, it's always, it's the same situation, right? It's playing a little bit of politics, trying not to burn too many bridges if one or two are burnt anyway, and trying to get across any bridges and being able to look back across those, you know, as you work your way further further down the stream. Yeah, just row, row, row your boat. That's right. <laughs> we'll get to one more point uh, before we wrap up for today. Your time at Boardroom is providing you, you know, with kind of a holistic place to write your content in different ways. If you were to really focus on one, and maybe we both know the answer to this, to one area of your writing, would it be sports or would it be something else? It would, it would be sports. There was one place that only wrote about crypto that did try to poach me recently. I won't say who it was. They did offer equity. Shout out to those guys for offering me equity. But I really like where I'm at in that I get to cover like a, almost whatever I want, just a mm -hmm. very broad swath of subject matters. And I think that makes me a better writer, a better person, really, because I think the the more well-versed you are in different things, the more you're able to be able to relate and converse with more people, like a broad variety of people. If you were only mm -hmm. focusing on one thing, then you wouldn't be 
as enriched and you wouldn't have the same conversational currency that you would you were writing about anything from basketball or baseball to nfts or vr or tech or music or cannabis and so i'm very thankful that i don't have to choose i were to choose i guess basketball but i'm very glad that my bosses are a lot nicer than you are and aren't constricting me at all you're me i mean just a jerk things sticking to my agenda right <laughs> well yeah, I'm, I'm happy sure. that you uh kind of tie that to where, where we started today pointing to you know malcolm gladwell's outliers the ten thousand hour rule right having the opportunity to stick within a you know specific area and, you know if in your case if it's sports if it ends up being exclusively basketball one day those ten thousand hours of practice will just be ten thousand articles you've written each one probably takes more than an hour so over time you'll be well over well, the ten thousand hour mark <laughs> longer than others it all balances out yeah and the balance is i think all we can ask for as uh, as we make our way through our careers looking at the bad times, look, expecting the good times, and learning from all those opportunities as they cross our paths. I do want to thank you for your time today. I think we had a great session. I appreciate your thought process, working through your time from journalism school, through your time writing for the Jerusalem Baseball League, and now at your time at Boardroom. Um, so thank you, Shlomo, and I'm looking forward to hearing and seeing your next steps. Thank you for having me, Robert. So I just want to give a thanks to all our listeners. Please visit our website at nftpcast.com. Complete the Google form on our website to stay in touch. Submit future topics and industries for us to cover, recover, and discover. Tune in for the next episode and see you next time. Hi, this is Tyler, the sound engineer with the Networking for the People podcast. If you like today's episode and the music we played, check us out on Facebook and Instagram and at nftpcast.com. Thanks so much and have a great day.